OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Um, all right. Well, just in the uh, fashion of how we like to do things, let's just jump right in. So uh, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today, Jonathan. We're so excited to be able to chat with you and, and really dive into everything that's going on in your world. And uh, the best way for us to start is uh, if you can give us a little bit of background on yourself, where you kind of come from, where you're at and where you're looking to go. And then one thing about you that nobody will know. Let's see. Um you know, I started becoming an angel investor back in 2012. It was just something I got really interested in. Uh, I have a background in uh, investing in the public stock markets as a financial advisor. And at the time I was uh, running my family's clothing company and I knew I wanted to have the bug of just like getting into investing again. And I'm in Los Angeles. So you hear about Silicon Beach and I want to learn more and more about that. And I took my journey back in 2012. You know, since then I've done over 80 plus different deals from pre-seed to, you know, pre-IPO companies. You know, some have worked out, some haven't. That's okay. It's the nature of the beast. Uh, I've been, uh, become an LP in like 16 different funds um, throughout LA and Silicon Valley. Um, I started my own fund in 2018 with two really close friends. We don't have outside capital. We just have money, our own money in it. And uh, we look at really pre-seed, seed and series A companies uh, in the technology and consumer space. Our check sizes are anywhere from 100,000 to 250 initially. And at the same time, I'm part of another company called Truesdale Ventures that my other partner started. It's a family office where we all contribute um, money and, and our due diligence and our skill set to look at deals that aren't just pre-seed seed and series A. They could be like, you know, first check in all the way to like a pre-IPO company where we could be putting like, you know, tens of twenties of millions of dollars in. Um, Let's see, something that not many people know about me. Uh, ooh, it's always a good one. Well, no one would really know that like I'm a two-time Emmy winner. You know, if, and which is funny because if you Google my name, it'll say that I'm a TV producer, which is so funny because like I actually rather be known as a, as a venture capitalist, but you know, IMDB goes up <laughs> in the search rankings <laughs> and SEO. That's awesome. Two-time Emmy winner, That's, yeah. uh, this is awesome. Yeah. You have to explain. Give us a little bit more context into this Emmy-winning side um, of things. Through one of my uh, portfolio companies, uh, she introduced me to a, a great, uh, talented uh, executive producing creator and writer and director of a show called The Bay, B-A-Y. So, um, you know, I helped finance it a little, being a producer for the last three seasons. Um, so I'm technically a three-time nominee and two-time winner. I didn't even realize I won this year until the, they sent me like, hey, you can buy your Emmy now. <laughs> well, that's... Oh, they don't give you the Emmy? They give you only certain, so certain number, like one or two, but like, you know, but then everything else after that, for if you have more than one producer, two producers, got to buy your own. That's the oh, deal. really? Mm -hmm. So what's the price tag on an Emmy? God, I think it's like five, six hundred dollars. Oh, that's yeah, not 800, Maybe eight hundred, yeah. Like five, six hundred thousand. No, no, no. That, that's how much you like invest, right? <laughs> so it's not pure gold then. No, plated. <laughs> All right, fair enough, fair enough. But it still probably has, a, it carries a bit of a moniker. It gets everybody excited when you share that. It's, it's interesting, right? People, I, people are more excited and interested in learning about that than like any of some of my uh, investment companies. <laughs> well, it is, I guess in a way it has, it carries its own nostalgia. There's not very, there's very few of them, I guess, in the world that we're aware of that people have. And uh, when you win one, compared to the amount of people out there, it's got to be carry some weight. It's got to be, it's like winning the Stanley Cup or winning uh, uh, the Super Bowl. It's not happening every week or every year, right? But it's just, it's you're, you're joining a great set of talented people. And, you know, you're just like, just like, you know, you're investing in the startups, you're, you're, you're investing in someone's dream and vision and you're getting awarded for it. So yeah, it's, it's been a fun experience and uh, we'll see what the future holds. I love it. The next investment, yeah. <laughs> I love it. No, that's uh, that's pretty exciting. And, and again, something nobody knows, so it's worth uh, diving into. So uh, just to go back a little bit, mm -hmm. um, being in the investment side and carrying this through to the startups and stuff like that, what kind of experience can you say that you really honed in on in your past when you were uh, trading that really exemplified what you're doing today? So there's certain skills that you had, and is it 
uh, short-term gains for uh, uh, big money? Like what is the transaction that you kind of took that and said, you know what, this is how I'm going to treat the same thing I'm doing today. It's back, back hunch. You know, when you're stock trading or you're investment trading, you've kind of got your own little method of how you invest. It's kind of like playing cards. You kind of build your own little sequence and that's how you make the money. Is there a same kind of process that you learned back in the day that you use when you're working with startups? You know what, for me, it's like seeing the future, right? Because like right now, when you look at the talk to an entrepreneur, it's going to be rough, especially if when I'm investing so early, you're not going to believe them necessarily right away, right? But you're really investing in the person. And sometimes when it's this early, it's the person and the team that matters so much more to me than the idea, because the person can help pivot. Right. Once you're stuck with an idea, you might not be able to get there and you can do something else. I always think about like some one of my biggest regrets. I don't want to say regrets, but like mistakes that I made, I guess, was, uh, you know, I got um, this company in 2012. I got the pitch deck and it was the valuation of 20 million. And it was talking about, oh, we pretend to buy and sell stocks like a game. And you get like a weekly score. And I was just like, who wants to play this game? There's no Angry Birds. There's no like Plants and Zombies, you know, Zynga, anything like that. I thought like, who would want to play this? And, you know, and I thought the name was weird. Like, why do they call it Robin Hood? You know, and you just think like, you know, looking back, like I should have invested in Robin Hood, you know, that 25,000 <laughs> be worth like tens of millions, you know, but it was just something where like, I was too focused on the idea versus like the team and seeing how are they going to execute? Because you have to think future forward, right? Just like in the stock market, you don't invest on past performance. You're investing on what the new leadership, what the new strategy is going forward. And so I take that with me every time I look at a company. It's like, it's not where they are today, but where they're going to be. And can we help them raise money to get to their series A or their series B or, you know, the next round of financing that'll get them to the success. So in saying that though, a lot of it's also, uh, and I think in this context, is that when you were looking at it, it's, let's just say that Airbnb came to you at the same time. Well, sharing economy wasn't as prevalent. No. So you might've said, you know what, this is a great team, but I really don't understand why someone's gonna wanna rent your space unless you were backpacking and living in hostels and yeah. understood this whole concept. It probably would've just said, man, I'm not really into it. And it's yeah. kind of the same as the gaming side. You were probably looking at it going, I don't see the context of it. But what is interesting is that as the world has shifted, your mindset is also picked up to it. So you get the odd person that probably did think that Robin Hood was amazing at the time, even though they probably didn't understand it or think it was anything for me, but either with Snapchat, you mm -hmm. know, like, oh really, I need to protect a photo that I'm sending. Is that really a business? So, but they were able to drive users and then the context of it built up. And uh, sometimes I guess the founding team is obviously number one right from the beginning, but how much of this plays into how the world's actually working at the time? Because yeah. look at these other properties that have become quite valuable. But at the time, they've been around 10 years, Netflix, 20 years, and they weren't making the same dent and they had a great team. So how much of that is going in with the world as it's changing? You know, when I look at it, like at, at any investment, it's like it just takes different teams, you know, because like and it's and also in investing, like. If you're an investor, you're not just counting on yourself. That's why I have business partners. I'm not a one-man show by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's about finding a right group of people, a cohort of sorts, uh, to find the best brain ca capital behind something. Like, I always think of this, and I get this from my business partner, Dave. It's like, it's one team to go from zero to 100,000 in revenue. It might be a totally different team to get to 100,000, to a million, and then 10 million, and then 100 million. It's not always Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates starting be the founder and CEO all the way through. Like you see that, like this takes this person to get you there and it makes more sense. So it's just like how you raise your money, who you bring in is just as important as anything. So, and, and me as an investor, I surround myself with as many people. Like, I mean, I could invest my own money. But I like partnerships, you know, I invest in other people's funds because it's more collaborative for me. It's not something where it's just like winner take all and I'm trying to get all of everything. It's like I need other brain power to help me get there. And I see that when I look at my investments, too, because the people who are more than willing to like look at themselves and say, oh, I need help or I, I need to, you know, not because like sometimes you have investment companies where it's just like, oh, oh, we got the money. Then you don't hear from them. And for not for just like days or weeks, but like months on end. And I'm just like, 
Uh, and now you're all of a sudden calling me for more money. I'm like, I didn't know what you were doing the whole time. So like, that makes no sense to me. Like you, you can't call me when you're in trouble. You have to call me to see like where you are along the path all the way. Cause that's why you're not just taking money from me, you know, as an angel investor, yes, maybe you are, but like now as, as an institutional investor, where we have more brain power and more capital, like you got to help me get you there sooner. I love it. No, it's so true. And, and, what I like about the fact is that you're open mm-hmm. to it. Uh, you're not admitting that uh, I'm doing something wrong here. What you're admitting to is that the more information I can bring in and the more minds that can be collaborating around what we're trying to achieve here, uh, we're going to be able to get there faster and we're going to be able to do it more uh, efficiently, but we're also going to be smarter about it. So <clears throat> go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say like, you know, I mean, like I'm wearing this MIT shirt, right? And I do mentoring there. And it's like, you know, when you go there, like you want to get Six Sigma, right? Certainty. And that's like 99.9999999% accuracy. But but think about what we do in real life. No one has that. Whether you're the president of the United States or you're a Fortune 500 CEO, or you're just deciding like what to have for dinner sometimes, right? Like you're not going to have that such accuracy in making a decision. If you get to one signal, that's almost 70%, 68%. Like that's pretty good. I'd go to Vegas on those odds. I'd make bets on those odds, right? And imagine if you're just a startup going like, listen, if you have confidence, you're over 51%, you got to make that decision and like live with it and pivot. If, as they come. I mean, that's really what it is. It's, it's people say like, there is no science to it. Yeah, there is science, there are some numbers you can crunch, but there is an art form to what we do. I agree, big time. And a lot of it is diving in and learning a lot more about that team, learning about their initiatives, learning about their direction. But even from your, the earlier comment you made um, where you're investing in funds, um, that's kind of uncommon. There's not a, you know, we, we know this space, we look around and we're not, we're looking for, well, why don't people want to invest in funds or why don't funds invest in other funds? I would think that if you find a great collaboration of people that are doing great things, you really could be very powerful by allowing them to go out and do the work and build and grow. And then the same thing and start stapling that into multiple groups uh, because you have the same equal mindset versus tackling the problem one by one by one by one. I would think that that one by one would take a long time versus being able to do it in a, in a big consortium. Yep. No, completely. And have you found that, um, and you mentioned this as well, that when you do make investments, sometimes you're not getting the same uh, feedback loop that you're looking for, but yeah. in the, or even in the fund side that you're, you know, I got my money and I go. Um, what do you recommend as a way to keep that conversation and that collaboration going so that, People feel part of what you're doing, but at the same time, they want to be investing in you because they see what's going on and they see the growth and the opportunities. Uh, What are ways that you try to keep that um, ball moving forward for everyone? For me, it's about check-ins, you know, sometimes like it's about if we're we're leading a company, you know, we're leading the round, we're going to put it in. We're going to say, hey, not that it's like, well, it almost is demanded of you, like quarterly meetings, right? And it's not that like, hey, it's like whether we have a board seat or not, we want to be involved really early. We want to know. Like it, sometimes you could be daily, you could be monthly, but at the very least quarterly, you know, especially because when this is like, we're not making thousands of thousands of bets, right? As a fund manager, you're making probably 20 to 25 bets for your one fund, you know, at any given time through a, a two to three year investment cycle. And these are your babies, right? Like, like who's going to call their baby ugly? Like, it's not like the one's a bastard stepchild. Like, no, you're going to be focused and love them each individually as much. Like, you know, other funds like Founders Fund, for example, I know, for example, they, they, they basically say when they invest, this is going to be the entire fund returner, right? That's how much conviction you have because you're not thinking like, oh, this is like, yeah, these are okay, but these are the best. Like over time, you're going to see that, right? But when you first make the initial investment, the belief is like, this is, this is it. This is like, this is makes perfect sense at this moment. The best investment I can make with all the information I'm given right here, right now. And then how do you find that, um, how fast that changes? And then how do you guys as an organization step in to kind of help that along? Because you make this investment, everything is great. Like you said, like you're all in, this company's amazing. And then six months, eight months in, problem, this thing, this happened, this occurred. And now you're like, oh my God, what's going on here? Um, how, do you, how do you kind of interject or how do you keep guiding or help you? What, what is that next step for you guys? 
for us, we got to look at metrics, right? Like part of the quarterly calls we have was like, listen, we're going to send you an Excel spreadsheet, right? And like, let us know the revenue numbers, right? Let us know where you're, are you spending? Are you on, on budget, right? From basically on your, uh, on all the, uh, all the performance you sent before and, and like looking at like, well, gee, like why is this month more or less than what was on track, right? And so that's what's important to us, being able to see things much more earlier. Because like, one time I invested in a company and it makes perfect. And I thought it was great. This is the company I invested in instead of Robinhood, funny enough. And it was a, it was a diabetes care uh, investment company out of uh, or a startup out of YC. Unfortunately, it folded last year, but the concept made sense. Like when we go see our doctor, like you want more data as possible. But when you go see your doctor, you're just getting one data point. What your blood is that day when you get your, get it drawn. Well, what if you're giving your daughter daily, you know, like the whole idea of Theranos and everything there was like, if you're just, you know, doing your blood sugars and sending that in every day, your doctor is going to have a point of data to make a clear understanding of where you are as a diabetic or if you're pre-diabetic or whatever. So it's like, it's not that like out of 365 days, that one day you have one reading, you're trying to get as many readings as possible along the way. And that way you could help make a change sooner than later. Agreed. Now, how do you get that data? How do you get that open communication? Because they've got other investors, they've got other advisors, they've got business to run. So how do you kind of maneuver through that? Is it, do you assign it and say, hey, the CFO in the company needs to be um, the person that I need to chat with more often because we need to be able to help collaborate? Like, how do you designate this to make sure that you're able to put in a couple of feelers and help out here and there? Yeah. Difference between an angel investor and being like an institutional investor or a venture capitalist, right? Because you're the difference of angel investor versus venture capitalist. What are the differences, right? An angel investor, you're not going to be day to day. You you know, they, they don't anticipate. They'll come to you if they have questions. But as a venture capitalist, it's really like I, I have a set of partners, me and my partner, Dave or Philip. And listen, these are our companies. We're going to have to split up. We can't all be, listen, we can all pull each other in when we need to at times, but like, this is what I'm responsible for. And this is the, what I need to check in on. Cause it's not about just like, oh, well, he's good at that. And you're good at this. And then like, we all piece it together. It's like, no, you're that one point of contact. And being the point of contact gives me the ability to say, oh, well, I'm not good. I don't have enough information. I need to pull this partner in. Or I need to like talk to a friend from business school or from MIT that I went to that like, they understand this a little better and keep pulling in together. Cause it's more info, it's more data. I mean, like data is eating the world, right? Like that's what Mark Adriesen said. And that's kind of the same principles applying. You're just trying to get as much information as you can to make the best decisions. So from our point of view, it's like someone is leading one company, like just in case, like just like when you're writing a brief for the Supreme Court, right? There are nine justices, but one is leading the opinion on the opposition side. And so it's like, okay, you're leading the context. So like, I want to invest in this company, user why? Like, I mean, I mean, when you're investing in a fund, you should ask, look at like uh, the memos, right? Like, why did you come up with this decision of investing in this company at that time? Because that's part of it's like CYA, you know, but the other part of it's like, no, you're, you're truly justifying why it made sense for you to do it. And this is the follow-ups you need to do to see it through. Because throwing in money is not enough. I mean, like, and if you're a startup and that's all you care about, like, I probably wouldn't want to invest in you either. Because if you're just looking for someone who's giving you like the highest valuation with the least amount of like care and like interest, that's not going to necessarily lead you to success. I love it. So you've got a good way of getting everybody on your team associated inside of the business and getting that who's doing what, who's good at it, and then collaborating and ensuring you've got that direction going forward. Um, and I love the points. I, I think they're they're golden because the, not only does that work for you inside of a company, but it works inside of your own fund. And the, the way you guys would be working is kind of dictating how you should be working with your startups. So it allows for that multi-pollination, um, I guess, of your own internal skills, updating your investors by doing the right things, and then taking that path to the startups and saying, hey, Internally, we have to work this way. This is how we got to work with you guys so you can have the same positive outcome that we're receiving. Right. So now that you've kind of structured this with your startups, uh, how long, how far do you go with them? Is If it's in a pre-seed, are you doing this at each stage of the investment and are you going all the way to a series B, C, D? Or is there a handoff point where you're saying, all right, guys, we've got you to here now. You know, Horowitz is coming in. 
They're going to take over. We don't need to be here anymore. So love you guys, but uh, we're going to sit on the back burner now. Yeah. It depends what strategy we're talking about. Because Unicorn Venture Partners sits within Truesdale Ventures, it's just that from Unicorn's perspective, we're pre-seed seed and Series A. My job is to get you to college, right? That's how I look at it. When we get your Series A, you're getting, like you got into whatever, Harvard, UCLA, USC, whatever college you got into. And it's that team's job to get you over, right? Because like I said, we're good to getting you to your Series A from Unicorn's perspective. But at the same time, like we have you know, Truesdale, where Truesdale, we can go a little bit further with you, you know, in terms of writing checks, but we necessarily don't want to be like always a lead because, because I think we could take a company from the first check all the way to free IPO, but we can't be the only check writers. So we better make sure we have like a consortium of people who are willing to take the lead with us and take the risks with us because it's not just the money that we're worried about. It's just like, well, we might not know a certain person at Costco or, or at Walmart, you know, because we're more like, oh, we have more better people at Kroger, for example, if it was a good CPG company. So we need those kind of people to help us out and, and get into more doors. Like then you look at like, well, ooh, we have a really great traditional brick and mortar strategy. Well, we need to find somebody who really is good at, you know, direct consumer and driving their B2C business. You know, and having like, well, what, what kind of, you know, Facebook or Google or TikTok strategy that company should have. So it really just depends. But like, from my perspective, I think the Series A is more than enough. And then it's everyone else because the, those are huge check sizes, right? At that point, you're looking at like five, six million, you know, rounds. And the lead investors got to put three to four. It's a lot of conviction. It's not that we're, we don't want to do it, but it's just that we're not a fund of that capability. Because when you think about it, a seed investment fund shouldn't be have assets under management over hundred million. That's just too much at times. Because like a, a company that early, you give them extra money, doesn't mean they're going to be better. It just means they have extra money, they got to spend it. And like, they can be very wasteful for it. And it's just like, and, and like, if you're going to like write a $5 million seed round, they're not going to be able to get any other money. You're controlling it all the way through. And it's just like, that's not good for them getting their next round of funding. For sure. So when you're tying in these other investment community or these other groups, um, and you're not being the only funds coming in in that pre-seed seed round up to, into Series A, mm -hmm. uh, are there criteria that you're looking for? Like, do you vet who those other groups are that are coming in? Or you're allowing the startup to go figure out their own landscape? Usually it depends where we come in. If it's something that we love, you know, we're going to be on phone calls for you. We're going to dial for dollars just as, just as you are, right? And like, hey, like they're going to, other firms want their due diligence. Come talk to us. There's been a couple of our portfolio companies where, you know, they're out there raising money still and we are references, you know? And at the same time, it's just like, oh, I, I, you know, I'm an LP in so many different funds. Like, I'm going to go talk to people like, oh, why this? And like, and sometimes you don't even know. It's like they're in both funds, more than one. I've had that happen, too, which is great. That means it's even more diligence for me to look at. That makes me feel safer if I'm making a Series A investment. Because, you know, the idea of being a seed investor is that, like, the anticipation is that you're going to write their next round to their Series A. It's going to be look really horrible if you don't. Because that means, because if you don't, that means you don't believe in them anymore. You don't think they could like grow as promised. So that that's one of the things where like Andreessen and the, the bigger like VC firms, they're not really in the seed stage because they want to get out of the risk more, right? Because it's not a horrible if they put in the seed check and they're not going to write their series A or series B. Like, because it's like, well, well, that's when you know it's a winner more than likely. And that's where you're going to like, you know, you know, double down. Yeah, for sure. And, and it, uh, it makes uh, it's perfect logic that as you're working with these companies, you're bringing in, you're helping them close quicker and move faster. So that by the time you do get to that Series A, you're already aligning it up. You've, you've already built enough street cred so that that's bringing it up enough value. And then once that next group comes in, they're going to help move them forward and allow you to go back and start doing the same process again with other companies. Yep. Absolutely. So while you're, you're doing that, what are the things that these series A and above companies, what are they looking for? Is it the conviction? Is it the team? Is it the product? Is it the revenues? All of these together, what things are they looking for that really shape this up um, from a founder standpoint and a team that they need to really focus on when they get to these stages? Mm -hmm. No, from my perspective, when it comes to that, it's really like the revenue, the ARR. You know, because when you're a seed investment, you know, you're trying to get to like 100 
you know, 100,000 MRR. So you're almost at like a million, right? Which is, it's amazing. That's great. So like when you're looking at a pre-seed, like a, a post, like, you know, seed round or a series A, you know, they want you to be, you know, getting to that point where you're going to be at like a million ARR, right? And it's just like, you figured it out. You don't, you have a series A, you have more than an MVP. You have a product market fit, you have great customers. And now like maybe you're in one part of the region or the world. Now it's like, well, we're gonna give you more money to accelerate. Like we're adding gas to the fire. And that's what's exciting about a series A investment. So it's just like, you know, I, I look at things where it's just like, it's a medical, you know, telemedicine health. Um, they've gotten a great traction in San Francisco or California or Southern California. Now it's like, okay, we need more money to go to New York, to go to the Midwest. And like, that's gonna, we're gonna grow to each channel. Or or it could be like, we're only located physically here in this location. Now we need to open up in other cities, other tier one cities or tier two cities. And you're gonna see like, listen, it worked here. We could prove it out in another uh, atmosphere. So that's what it's a little bit different. Like to me, it seems like for series A and higher, there, it's more of like an iBanking role where it's like, you're just throwing numbers at it because it's like saying like, oh, this is how much I need to get, you know, to acquire a customer. Like you have ideas, right? Like this is how much I need to spend in Facebook ads or Instagram ads. Like, where it's like, you didn't have that luxury before. You were just like doing like minimal, like, uh, you know, uh, spend a day, a hundred dollars here and there to see what the traction would be. And now it's just like, wow, I'm going to blow it out with this budget. Because really like, no, I, I always get, not. I always think it's funny when, when companies like, oh, we're going to be profitable in three years. I'm like, really? Because maybe you shouldn't be profitable. Maybe you should be taking the money that you made and putting it back in the business and growing even bigger. Because we care about like, not like, you know, like singles and doubles as a venture capitalist. The idea is like, we want you to get hitting in the hundreds of millions, you know, in valuation and, and like getting profitable is not like the goal when it's like three years down the road. It's great if it's a cash cow business and it's like, and you don't like, you're not trying to generate a huge amount of alpha. You know, it's great if you just want a steady income stream, which is great. It's just like when you have property. Right. And you have real estate, you know, uh, rental income. That's great. Right. But rental income is not going to make you like, you know, 10 times richer. You know, it's just steady streaming money. Right. So it's it's kind of like where your risk tolerance is and talking to your entrepreneurs, because it's like, why are you thinking small? Right. Because like, look, Uber to this day is revenue making a lot of right, but they're not profitable. But eventually they're getting to that point where they will be just like where Amazon for 10 plus years was not profitable. You know, so we, 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 we get more excited about companies who are like, show us how you're going to spend your money to keep growing. You know, sometimes getting the customer base, because when, when Facebook was at a billion in valuation, you know, they were nowhere near the, the profitability that they are now, you know, when they're at 900 plus billion. Imagine, like you could have gotten a 900 X return by investing in Facebook at a billion because they had so much room to grow. Like, that's what we want to see. Not everything's like that. But that's the idea of going forward because, uh, you know, my business partner likes to say venture style returns. We're, we're venture capitalists. We're not looking for, you know, 20%. We're looking for, you know, even at a billion dollars, you want to get to 10 billion. And that's what you see at like Andreessen and everybody else. Like when they're putting in more money for Robinhood at 11 billion and they're putting in another 200 million, like they don't think Robinhood's going to just go to 12 billion. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, it better be a two X at least. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They know that there's a, a high potential that they're going to double same thing like clubhouse and all of these brands that have just been taking off in a short period of time. It's because they're seeing where it's going to go kind of like, and I guess you can look at it. The same thing is um, looking at Tesla and saying, this is where Tesla is going to be um, in a few years because it's really overpriced something like 500 times uh, revenue. But uh I guess there is a potential that still could move there, but the idea is that they're creating a room to allow that to occur yeah. and they're visioning it happening. And that doesn't just go on the venture side. That's the ownership side. That's the direction they want to go. And you kind of have to get behind that if you want to be able to build and grow a company. Yeah, definitely. So it, we're very forward thinking. I mean, that's, that's the whole idea and it's nothing's booked. You know, it's, it's always like past, kicking the can down a little bit further and seeing where we can get the opportunities. Yeah. I love that that you're that you take this approach at at an earlier stage with the companies in that pre-seed and seed where you're looking at the company and saying, uh, you know what, don't don't worry so much about uh, what you're spending. Worry about how you're going to grow it. Mm -hmm. Line up the the numbers, the data, and start pushing this MVP and start making this MVP get some traction. That million dollars a year or that 
100,000 MRR is a good little point to get to. And once they start to prove the market, now if we throw the gasoline on the fire, can this really blow this up? And I like that aspect because a lot of companies have that fear. And like you said, they're like, I want to be profitable. And maybe being profitable is great. But then there's a point of, I'm not profitable. Now, how do you go into massive debt and grow the hell out of your company? Yeah. And we saw that. Like there was a big a switch, right? For when we were talking about Uber or Airbnb or WeWork, right? They were they're private too long, right? And and it was just like they were growing, but they weren't profitable. But like when you're at a series A, series B, like I don't care about profitability right now. I need to see growth because there, there is a point. There, the, the curve inverts, right? Where it's like, okay, now profitability matters because now you're going to become a public company and you're going to have to hit, you know, analysts like targets and you're going to have to show how you're going to be profitable. And I get that, right? But when you're a private company, the, 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 the best part of being private is that you don't have shareholders. You know, you're not, you're not beholden to like the whole public and how you're traded and the perception. You're just trying to grow the company as big as you can. And then one day you're going to have the right, you know, the right strategy in place to grow. Nope. I love it. And uh, this is kind of in the, in that same vein is that you've got that series A and that's where you start getting into that blitz scaling, which is becoming uh, a quite popular, um, well, maybe it's not quite popular, I'm popularizing it, I guess, but looking at that avenue of it, of where you start to run fast, put in, feed it with money, feed it, drive it, and make sure that that team is the one that's going to make that thing double, triple every month. Yeah. At the same time, it's not about being first. Sometimes it is, right? But like right now we see with Clubhouse, hey, they've done an amazing job, you know, but it's really, it's still like, it's really secular, you know, it's not like, it's not open up to the masses yet. You're only on uh, iOS, you know, Apple, you're not on Android. There's a huge market there. Yep. Right. And like, how are you going to go? How are you going to monetize? Right. Like, I think they've done a great job, but I can't say that Clubhouse is the only audio platform, you know, where Twitter's coming up with spaces. Facebook is coming with a copycat and there's other great entrepreneurs with maybe even better tech, not necessarily like the, the network effects yet of more people coming on, but We'll wait and see, right? I mean, like, I think we all think, like, looking in the past history, like the Fortune 500 companies or, you know, the Dow, they're not always the same. They're going to change year to year. Ten, yep. Five years ago, it's not the same companies, you know, because there's good management, bad management. There's, like, you know, things that go out of style, you know, like a blockbuster, you know, or, or a travel agent, you know, <laughs> that, 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 like, you know, I, I look at companies where we do more automation and robotics, Right. And so like we have to like find new new roles for the job force and like finding really lean things to help, you know, cut uh, cut uh, the cost and increase profitability. So that's what we definitely look at every day and see what possibilities are. Love it. And uh, in your kind of movement forward, what types of uh, companies are you looking for? What is the uh, is it open ended sectors or have you really started to refine kind of your investment thesis and say, you know what, I'm going to stick to these companies and this is an area I'm more heavily interested in? For me, you know, I, I keep it very broad consumer and tech. Right. I, I would say I'm a little better understanding of consumer. It's just of my background. You know, like I understand the sales cycle. I understand the turns um, with tech. It's a little bit of a longer sales cycle. Right. I mean, I have an investment into Docsend, Right. And and it's like everyone uses Docsend. But like it's not DocSign's not huge in enterprise yet. You know, you have DocuSign and HelloSign and other like platforms where like, yeah, they're they're kind of leading more than DocSign, but that's okay. I'm sure Russ and the team, they're gonna find a way to add up, add in signatures or add in data rooms and they're gonna like increase the revenue, try to find more revenue generating profit streams. Um, but going forward, like we still love looking at consumer products, we love looking at better for you brands. Um, you know, we we have things of the future of work. You know, these are huge catchphrases, but I think that's important. Like, we're not going to be in this age where, like, you don't know how to use a computer. You know, I remember interning the the state, you know, at the Department of Labor, and it was just like there was still like that 20 year gap of people truly knowing how to use a computer. And like, I think we're way past that now, you know, or where we are with smartphones and everything. And at the same time, you know, it's uh, in this COVID world, like, you know, not necessarily have to be like, well, yeah, we're not going to be in the office anymore. So how are we going to be, you'll get productivity better. We look at those kind of projects um, uh, and mental health and wellness, just as important, you know, whether it's like, not necessarily that we look at healthcare or biotech, you know, but really just like, you know, telemedicine is something that we are focused on and interested in uh, financial fintech companies, like how you're investing your money and like, uh, you know, how are you going to spend your time? 
with it. I mean, those are just important, uh, you know, industries that we look at. I like it. And it, it dawned on me there. It makes me think like your, your past experience with all the things that you've done in the family business and the trading side, how much that's actually helped you build out your own thesis of the types of investments and how you invest and how your company is actually shaped. Um, and, and do you see there's a lot of correlation there? Like, do you feel like if I wouldn't have accomplished these things in the past, I probably wouldn't be investing in startups because I wouldn't have had the same perspective. It's, it's, it's people say like, oh, I love like, you know, investing in people who are, who are operators. And it's true because like once you've been in the trenches, you know, you know, the, the struggle that people face and deal with, you know, it's, it's not like uh, you're reading a case study and giving it your best go. It's like, no, this is actually, it happened to me. I remember like when I was first interviewing for jobs, you know, at MIT and like, I wouldn't say at the time when I was like, uh, geez, what was this? this is 2011, 10 years ago when I was 28, I don't think I had enough you know, experiences to truly like indicate like, Hey, how I can look at things. But now being like, you know, geez, like, uh, you know, 10 years later, like I definitely have a better perspective because I've been through it. I've, I've been more than just a, you know, a project manager. I've, I've been a vice president. I've been a president of a company and you just see different things. Cause like, I always tell people like live, this is the lie of academia. It's like, okay, given A and B find C, but like in the real world, like you could be a great test taker, but in the real world, you don't know what A and B is. Like no one's going to just give you the numbers and then, oh, okay, with that, I can figure it out. Like you, you are, it's a completely blank slate. And just like with our startups and our entrepreneurs, like they are just triggering to figure it out. You know, before even getting comes to see, they have to figure out what, what product market fit they can be, where, where their customers are, and then they can solve the problem getting, you know, revenue and customer growth. But have a great focus, have a great problem, and you'll be able to get to that revenue eventually. Yeah. Absolutely. Like you mentioned earlier, Facebook was a prime example of that. When, when they went to market, they didn't have revenues. They had little, little revenues, but they had millions of users and they hadn't turned on the revenue machine. And then as soon as they turned it on, bam, the rest is history. Yeah. But they made like key, key buys, right? Whether it's WhatsApp or Instagram. I mean, like when you looked at their like S1, when they went public, like there was something in there that said they, they hadn't like understand mobile yet. You know, when you think of Facebook initially, it wasn't this like app world that we're in. Like we have to thank like, you know, Steve Jobs and Apple and like getting us used to apps, right? But like before it's like you had, went on Facebook on an actual web browser. You added people, you made updates then. Like think about like if they didn't pivot and understand that, that and you, you look at right now with Snapchat, they've kind of figured it out where it's like, oh, this is how we can grow revenue. This is our niche. We're not going to try to take Facebook's market share or do the, we're going to be in our own space. And this is how we're going to grow 50% revenue year to year. Yeah, that's true. I love it. Well, I think Jonathan, we could, we could continue talking on all this stuff in depth and we might have to actually have a part two. <laughs> um, but uh, for right now, uh, we're going to, uh, we're going to shift a little bit before we go into rapid fire questions. Uh, but I think the journey and all the information you shared is uh, bang on. It's, it's brilliant. I got notes everywhere now. My brain's going 100 miles an hour, but uh, I appreciate that. Um, so now I want to kind of dive into a more of um, an experience question. And with all the things that you've gone through, the companies you've seen, is there a story that really kind of tugged at you, that really made a, an impression on you where a startup really overcame the barriers of anything that could possibly be thrown at them and really use that as a way to fuel them and, and give them the energy to succeed. Um, we're always looking for that uh, positive, exciting uh, succession story where someone just went to town and they, they know that a tough go maybe at the beginning, but they overcame it. And, you know, now they're Facebookish and they're driving like crazy. Uh, any great stories or founders or anything that comes to mind? Um. Not necessarily that comes to mind, like specifically, but just I know a lot of my portfolio companies are in the journey. They are in the journey. And like, you know, they were literally like two, like a week away from like closing, you know, because they didn't get enough money, right? Because like you're all about your cash flow. Like companies go bankrupt because of cash flow, not because they don't have any sales. It's just like they have to pay their, their creditors, right? And or their um supplier so like i you know i have a beverage company you know and it's a great product right but she needs money to scale she needs money to grow and like sometimes you make one decision about buying extra cans because there's a can shortage and like oh your cash flow is like tied up 
But luckily, like, you know, we sit on the board and we believe in the company and we are willing to fund it through in these times of crises because it, it it's not about like the end that that's so fascinating to me. It's like the journey along the way. And you could just laugh about it. That's what excites me. It's like, you know, like, oh, the people were there and now they call him Zuck. Like, yeah, like that's how you know you're real. You're really close to Mark Zucker because you don't call him Mark. He doesn't go by Mark. But it's just like you, you knew like you had no idea what it would become. And then, and just like, wow, we made this change or we made that higher. And that was the difference. And it was like one little phone call, like got you into the store. And that's what's exciting to me. And, and it's like, it's never, well, the reasons why I do this is that it's not mundane. It's not like nine to five and you're out. Like after being a president and owner of a company, it's like, it's 24 seven. And hopefully it's not your entire or your work-life balance is out of whack, but you're going to find things where it's just like, wow that's really exciting. Like we got in front of this person and now we're here at this place. Now we're in Whole Foods now, or we're, you know, and it was just like, wow, it makes perfect sense now. But like, you know, like, Hey, maybe we got denied on Shark Tank, but now, you know, we're now it's like this coffee company that we have a board seat on like, Hey, it's taken off like tremendously. And that's, that's, what's exciting. I mean, there, there is a struggle. You're going to have bad, you know, bad days, but hopefully in the end, you're going to have more good than bad. Agreed. And when you do have that bad day, you just got to know who you can reach out to and lean on a little bit and that'll uh, help you get through the day. Yep. Love it. Um, all right. We're going to jump into some rapid fire questions. Sure. All right. What's your favorite part of investing? Let's see. It's not the end game. It's not just like, Oh yeah, we made millions of dollars. That's it's not that it's just that like, like, wow, we made an investment into a company that's not going to say cliche to change the world, but like, wow, it, it really is something where it's like, you know, we're futurists. We're seeing the future. Like I have this like web, uh, you know, I bought this domain weirdvc.com. Like maybe I'll call it something weird ventures. Cause it's just like, you know, like 10 years ago you were talking about, it would be weird to like, you know, sleep on someone's air mattress, you know, or get into someone's random car at the airport, but it's not weird anymore. So it's just like how we look at things that, that seems so crazy. We're like, we're pretending to buy and sell stock <laughs> you know, on an app. And now it's like, wow, this is how we trade. Look at how it's changed everything. There's congressional hearings. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I love that. Um, I didn't come up with a weird, but I want to come up with a podcast where yeah. we actually interviewed startups that were doing weird, odd things. Yeah. Um, we had one where there was a keyboard and it was uh, all different sounds you never heard of before, but it was like a piano, but it was like a hundred keys, but it was completely different sounds. It would blow your mind away. And we're like, man, there's probably something here. We could just investigate and find companies that are doing things that would blow your mind, even though they may not be mainstream, but it could be pretty cool. So I love that. Uh, all right. How many companies do you invest in per year? I think conservatively we're, we're up there. Like we're 15 to 20 companies, depending, um, you know, brand new investments. Yeah. Love so, it. You, you mentioned a little bit about the verticals, maybe just uh, reemphasize the verticals you focus on. Yeah. Uh, technology, which is very broad. It could be, you know, SaaS, it could be FinTech, it could be real estate FinTech, it could be, you know, blockchain, it could be just enterprise um, and then consumer and consumer could be marketplaces, could be an actual CPG product or it could be, you know, uh, you know, the tech behind something, you know, may, those are the two real verticals, tech and consumer. Okay. Uh, what is your timeline for investments? In terms of making a decision or like what we do? Start to the beginning, start to end. Like start having a chat and decide you're going to make an investment. Yeah. Three days or you know, three months. And it also really depends, right? I, I always, that's the thing I always tell people. It's, it's not a set amount of time because like, you know, I, I literally, I'm about to invest in a company now where, you know, he's raising 3 million off a of 25 million pre-money valuation and there's no deck. Like there's no deck. So like what? But all we have is his MRR. He's at 500,000 MRR after two months and he's a dating app, you know? And it's just like, wow. I mean, yeah, he's got numbers. He's got traction. And like, we're all fighting for allocation, you know? And it's just like, you don't need a deck. Like some things are just hot. Like, yeah, I can make a decision like in a week. Okay. Yes. We're going to put in a million, yep. you know, or sometimes it's just like, Ugh, you know, we need to go over the, the legals, you know, it's like sometimes, yeah, we can't even go through our legal team. And, and review everything because it's like, well, we either sign this or we're out. Yep. Oh, I love it. And those, those are hot deals. Those are always yeah. exciting too. You got to move quick. Um, any, uh, anything that you look for when you're making an investment in the, on the DD side, is it 
focused heavily on the team or on the product? You mentioned a few of these in the past, but what is the big thing for you guys? Um, and it depends what stage, right? Because if we're looking at a seed deal, it's all about the team for me because if the revenue is not going to be there. You know, it's not going to be, you're, 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 you're entrusting them that they've set out a path and that they're willing to pivot and move forward and something else. So I look at the team when it's a C deal, when it's a series A deal, it's almost like a time where it's like, you know, you can, the money helps them grow the team, right? So it's almost like you're helping them shape the team. Where like in the C deal, like they don't have the team to execute, but they have enough people to get it through. And like to grow and figure it out. So when it's seed, I definitely look at the team. When it's more Series A and higher, it's like it's looking at the numbers. It's looking at is it doesn't make sense for them to be able to grow this fast. Can they double from here, from year to year in their revenue? Because when you look at consumer products, like from year one to year two to year three, you should let's say you're getting to one million in sales, you should be at three million and then nine million because that's the trajectory you need to be at to get to exit velocity, whether that's through an acquisition or that's through an IPO, because that means you're growing fast enough. If you're just growing 10% year over year, that's not gonna cut it. That cuts it if you're Walmart, you know, I mean, because you're already at huge amounts of numbers. Yep. All right, uh, do you lead rounds? Yes, we do. Uh, we have we co-invest, but sometimes we do lead rounds as well, depending on how much we love a company. Okay, and uh, follow on investments? Um, that's the idea. Like any good investment fund would tell you, like you're, you're judged not on what you invest initially, but what you follow on on. Right. And I guess that's where you're just like you're gambling, like you're you're putting your money on the winners, because initially, you, let's say you're investing in 20 to 25 C companies. You can't like you can't honestly say all 25 are going to make it to the next round. So you're going to lead a follow on on the top, you know. Half of them, maybe 10 to 15. Right. And then maybe at the next 10 or 15, you know, if they go get to their series B, maybe, you know, a third of those or a fourth of those go, right? And so the, that's the ones. And listen, it doesn't have to be like, you have to be a unicorn. You have to like, you know, have double digit returns year over year. It's just that like, listen, you're doing a decent business and you can still exit out, you know, and you're going to get bolted onto something. But the idea is that the follow on is just as important because you're saving, you're not in allocating all the money you've raised into everything in the first three years of investing. Because that's why it's a 10-year investment cycle. Because after the first one, two, three years, you're going to be able to see the Series A, Series B winners that you're going to put in more money to save what you unfortunately, you know, had to, you know, shut down. Yep. I like it. Um, and any preferred terms you invest on? If it's pref shares, safes, common shares? You know, honestly, like what we like is like we like priced rounds. You know, like we will accept saves and convertible notes when we have to, uh, when we're not leading, right? We're just like, we're not, because we either are term makers or term takers, right? And so when we are uh, term makers, like we want to have a price job, because, you know, if I give you a safe, like you don't have to share, maybe unless it's written with a side letter, you don't have to share anything what you're doing. Like, I can't stop you from like going to Tahiti. You know, I mean, it'd be horrible if I didn't do my due diligence and understand like what kind of person you were, <laughs> how you would invest the money, but your debt. You know, it's not even debt. Safes are not even debt. Like you don't even get paid an in interest, right? Until it converts. So you can wait forever and just like, you just wait there. Yep. So when you're a price found, you, you, you have voting shares. You have, you know, a true ownership of a company. Love it. Love it. Um, okay. So that's, uh, that pretty much rounds the, up that part of it. And now we're just into the last legs of uh, this awesome discussion. And I wanted to, we get into a little more personal side. Okay. And um, so the first question on the personal side, what's your favorite sports team? Los Angeles Lakers, no question. Nice. I was a Lakers fan way, 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 way back when I was a kid. But then uh, the Raptors became... Uh, oh, well, you're uh, in Canada. Team, hey. so yeah. I could course, never I go see a Lakers game, but I could go watch a Raptors game. So there was a point in time where I was like, why am I a Lakers fan? I can't even see the team play live unless I'm flying there. And right now I'm 20 and I don't have, I can't drive there. So, or fly there. So then I had to become a new, a new fan. And uh, it's amazing that uh, the Raptors are uh, the team, but I do love the Lakers still. They still have a heart part of my heart, man. Yeah. It was all because of Fletch. Oh, really? Remember the movie Fletch? Yep. Yeah. He was Johnny all about Chase. the Lakers. Well, yeah. I was a huge fan of that movie. And then oh, that's wow. where I got into watching them. And I was oh, like, okay. guys well, I'm born and raised in Los Angeles. Yeah, I don't know. Got season tickets. <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, it's a great team. Okay, second question. Favorite movie? And what character would you play in the movie? 
Favorite movie? Ooh, this is a tough one. You know, like I could just go with a comedy and just be like, every time I watch The Big Lebowski, it's always something funny. It's always something funny. It was just like, God, I didn't even notice that. You know, what, a, what like, you know, the writing on that, you know, it's just like, it's so funny. It's like, it's like, it, for me, it's like, I, I like comedies more than like a drama, even though, you know, like only dramas win Academy Awards, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, a great comedy is just funny because sometimes like you just want to decompress and enjoy yourself. Um, you know, uh, what character? I don't know. I would love to be the dude, uh, <laughs> but you know, just be carefree. You know, I don't want to be intense like Walter and John Goodman or clueless like Donnie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, so which character? You got to pick a character. I, I said the dude, the dude, the dude, the dude, I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. yeah the, the big smarter Lebowski. than you think. He's smarter than you think. <laughs> oh, totally. I love that. Yeah. Uh, one of uh, our buddies, a group of us, it's pretty much our favorite movie. It's the only movie we actually quote continuously. So yeah. big fan of it. Yeah, that's awesome. Brilliant. I love it. Uh, well, Jonathan, I want to thank you for all of your time today. I learned a ton. The audience is going to learn a ton. But uh, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing. And we are going to have a part two, 100%. There's going to be even more stuff we're going to dive into. Uh, but I really appreciate your time. And the, the best way that we like to end the show off is uh, we want to leave the last word to you to share to anything you want to say to investors, to entrepreneurs, any advice, anything that you think uh, you want to share, but we leave you the last word. For me, it's, there's no one way, one or right, one way to solve a problem. I really appreciate entrepreneurs who have true grit, you know, and I appreciate investors who also have the same mindset, right? Because it's, you can't be closed off. You can't think that there's only one way of doing things, you know, and it's not just number based. There is some, you know, like, I think we're in the best market in the world, you know, and you're going to find ways like of getting business done and the true capitalist or true entrepreneur, they're going to find a way, you know, to get through, to push through, because that's what in every company, you, like if everyone accepted no for an answer, we wouldn't do anything. There would be no sales at all whatsoever. You can't take no for an answer. Like there's just no way. Like you got to find a way to get to yes. I like it. Awesome. Uh, Actually, that's uh, I'm going to use that line at some point in the next week because uh, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Don't take a no. Find a way to get a yes. I love it. Well, Jonathan, thank you very much for again for your time today. Uh, fantastic. And um, yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll end her there. But again, thanks for your time. You're very welcome, Jeffrey. You take care. Thank you. Everybody. All right. Awesome, man. That was huge, huge, massive feedback. Really loved all the things that they're doing, how they invest. Um, yeah, it, I loved a lot of the points of everything you said too, for sure. Um, you know, raise to get success, grow, hustle. And, uh, at the end, don't take no for an answer. Find out how to get those yeses. That was the key to all of that. So love that Jonathan, great job. Thanks everybody.